In a previous episode, we looked at the formerly secret Python plan. A quick reminder, Python was the plan to scatter central government around the country in small, hidden groups during nuclear war. No longer would the important people race out to the West Country to hide in the huge Burlington bunker in Wiltshire. Instead, Python took the opposite approach. Don't all hide in one place, one huge sitting duck beneath the Wiltshire soil. Instead, split, scatter, vamoose. The idea was that if central government splits into groups and hides in different places around Britain, then chances are some of them will survive the nuclear war and can then meet up afterwards on a radioactive wasteland somewhere and get about the business of governing Britain, what remains of Britain. So having your guys sprinkled in groups around the country seemed like the best bet for survival in the thermonuclear age. Central government would split and scatter under Python. But what about the levels below central government? What about the regions? Who governs them? Central government would be covered by Python, but local government would be carried out in a network of bunkers spread across the country. The names and the structure and the organisation of these bunkers changed across the Cold War, and we're not going to get bogged down today in tedious details of regional government restructuring and job titles and flowcharts of organisation, no thank you. Even with the various name changes across the years, the principle remained the same. After nuclear war, Britain would be split into regions, and each region would have a bunker, and each bunker would be led by a cabinet minister, and he or she would govern that region until central government, split into its little python groups, could regroup and take over the country again. Hopefully. Now, in its most famous guise, this network of regional bunkers were known as the Regional Seats of Government, or RSGs. And these bunkers were secret, just like the Python plan. But in February 1963, an anonymous group calling themselves Spies for Peace broke into one of them, took a bunch of photos and copied loads of documents and sent the evidence to newspapers, politicians and public figures and broke the secret of the RSGs wide open, telling the population what was planned for them after nuclear war. So let's hear the story of the Spies for Peace. But first, a quick explanation for my recent absence. If you don't follow me on Twitter, then you might wonder why there's been no podcast for the past uh, three weeks, I think it's been. Well, I've been moving house and everything, everything has been in absolute chaos. But we're in the flat now and we're trying to carve some kind of workspace out of all the forests of boxes and planks of wood. So thank you listeners for sticking with me and a particular thanks of course to all my patrons who donate money to the podcast each month. Now back to the spies for peace. We all know that the Cold War rose and fell in its tensions. There were periods of ironclad anxiety 
and then times when things softened and relaxed a bit. Things were softer, of course, in the 70s, in what we call the period of détente, and they were particularly scary in the early 60s, and of course the early 80s, when we had Reagan, Star Wars, Abel Archer, the shoot-down of the Korean passenger jet. I could go on, the early 80s was a wild time, if you were aware of the nuclear threat. But if all our nuclear fears of the 80s are scattered amongst those various flashpoints, the fears of the early 60s all tend to get bundled up into one big whopping event, the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course. See my previous episode, Black Saturday, if you want to learn a bit more about that. So in the early 60s, nuclear tensions were high. We had the Berlin Crisis and, of course, Cuba. And Kennedy was advising his fellow Americans to build a fallout shelter in the garden. He could do that with relative ease, as many Americans had space and money to build a shelter. Not so in cramped and cash-strapped Britain. If post-war America was booming and the president was able to speak of spending thousands on a shelter in the big giant garden, many Brits would have said, thousands? Giant garden? What? So no, there was no shelter craze in Britain. We follow America in so many trends, of course, but not in this one. In Britain, in the nuclear age, there would be no shelters for the population in nuclear war. Instead, homeowners were advised to brick up their windows and store some water in tins and disinfectant. That was the advice in the 60s, and as we know later with the infamous Protect and Survive information, that was still the advice in the 80s. And to be fair, (laughs) there's not much else you can advise, is there? So in Britain, there would be no shelters... Unless... Yep, that's right, there would be shelters for some. Across the country, bunkers were being built, or existing war rooms and basements were being hardened and reinforced to create a network of protected accommodation known as the, as we said, RSGs, regional seats of government. Now, we might think of regional or local government as the boring type of government, But not in this case, because after a nuclear war, these RSGs, they wouldn't be dealing with boring local government matters like emptying the bins and tidying up the parks. Instead, these RSGs would become like little scattered versions of Westminster, because they would actually be governing their region until central government, or some kind of new version of it, was able to regroup and govern the whole country again. So don't let the word regional fool you. They would be doing the work of central government, but for their region. So think of them as small governments with little, temporary, ruined, battered, lawless countries. So RSGs were being secretly built or adapted or reinforced all over Britain. It was a very ragtag bunch of buildings, which included army barracks, castles and repurposed bunkers. And one of them was an old chalk pit, which in the war had served as an underground aircraft factory, and then in the 60s became an RSG. This one was RSG 6, also known as Warren Row in Berkshire. 
And it was this bunker which the Spies for Peace revealed to the world. But firstly, how? How did this anonymous little group of activists and rebels break into a top-secret nuclear bunker? The very idea of a bunker is that it's meant to be secure and impenetrable and sealed off with big crazy blast doors. So how did this little gang get in? I'll read you an extract here from a New Statesman article written by the daughter of one of the spies, which explained how they gained access to this bunker. They drove for hours over ice-covered roads and tramped over snow-covered fields. At the east end of a village called Warren Row, they found a fenced-off hill with a padlocked wooden gate and an unmarked hut. They climbed over the gate to find a brick boiler house and a wide concrete ramp leading into the hillside. Radio aerials stood a little way off, their cables leading into the hill. One of the explorers tried the doors of the boiler house and found them unlocked. The four of them went in. Inside, they tried another door on what looked like a cupboard. This was also unlocked and swung open to reveal a steep staircase leading into an underground office complex. They ran down the stairs, their feet clattering in the silence, and snatched what papers they could from the desks. Then they rushed out and drove away, hardly able to believe their luck. So, that's how they got in. (laughs) That's how they did it. The doors were open, can you believe it? This top-secret bunker, designed to govern a region of Britain after a thermonuclear war, was just open. The group later made a second visit. This time the door to the boiler room was locked. So they just picked the lock. Easy peasy. And so they slipped back inside. This time with cameras. And they happily snapped photos of everything. And made copies of documents and maps. They were there for hours. The Spies for Peace then drew up a pamphlet revealing what was inside the Warren Row bunker. And what its horrible purpose was. They made 4,000 copies and sent them to newspapers and politicians and people with fame, name and influence. They knew they were looking at serious jail time if they were caught, so they were careful to try and cover their tracks. They posted their pamphlets from different locations, burnt all the original photographs and documents, and they even threw their typewriter into a canal. So what did this pamphlet say? I'll read you the introduction from it. It was entitled Danger, Official Secret, RSG6. This pamphlet is about a small group of people who have accepted thermonuclear war as a probability and are consciously and carefully planning for it. They are above the army, the police, the ministries or civil defence... They are based in 14 secret headquarters, each ruled by a regional commissioner with absolute power over millions of people. In the whole of Britain, only about 5,000 men and women are involved. These chosen few are our shadow military government. Their headquarters are called regional seats of government, 
Our story mainly concerns RSG6, which will rule much of southern England. The people in RSG6 are professors, top civil servants, air marshals and policemen. They are quietly waiting for the day the bomb drops, for that will be the day they take over. 4,000 copies printed and distributed in Britain and abroad, sent to the national press, papers covering the southern region, local councillors and political parties, sent to Bertrand Russell, Albert Schweitzer, Linus Pauling and members of anti-war movements everywhere. We hope they will do something about it. Sent to Harold McWilson, sent to Harold McWilson, George Wink and the head of MI5. We hope it will make them cross. Sent to Michael Foote, Barbara Castle, Tony Greenwood, Frank Cousins and Gerald Navarro. We shall be interested to see what they do. The pamphlet went on to give the location of every RSG, as well as their phone numbers, just in case any cheeky monkeys wanted to ring up and say, uh, Hi, um, with whom am I speaking? Is that the end of the world, guys? One of the main complaints of the group, apart from the obvious notion that the government will protect itself in bunkers but leave us up on the surface, is that the people who will staff the bunker and so who will run the region after the war, are unelected. Yes, each RSG will be headed by a government minister, known as the Regional Commissioner, but under him are people chosen for their expertise, not their electability and winning smiles. Governance post-war will shrink down to the unelected chosen people in those bunkers. There will be no luxury of democracy after nuclear war. And while it's obvious why that aggrieved the spies for peace, I must reluctantly say, come on lads, what's the alternative? If nuclear war is the way I imagine it to be, an all-out nuclear war, then you can't scour the country after the event, hauling skeletons up off the roadside saying, fancy standing for parliament? There will surely be a period, hopefully short, where there won't be a democracy. The spies were quite pleasantly surprised when the newspapers put the story on their front pages because they'd feared that the papers would be in league with the government and would hush up their revelations. But no, the news was out there and the hunt was on to find the anonymous spies. Special branch detectives mingled with the crowds at the Ban the Bomb marches in Trafalgar Square, hoping to catch a bit of gossip, uh, hear a name being dropped, or even see some of the leaflets being passed. Police, in fact, pounced on a local man who was giving out copies at Turnham Green in London. He was a builder and an activist, a Mr Kenneth Browning of Clacton. His defence was that he hadn't printed them, but simply that some guy had dropped round to his caravan during the night with uh, 14,000 copies and asked Mr Browning to dish them out. Police also raided several addresses in London, trying to find who was behind the pamphlet, but with no success. And so another tactic was tried in suppressing or subduing the effect of the pamphlet. The Times, on April 13th, 1963, tried to pour a bit of cold water on the pamphlet's revelations by 
reminding us that it can hardly be surprising to know the government have made plans for nuclear war or for how to govern after nuclear war. And so all that's really new here is a bunch of phone numbers and locations. They also said that defence officials have privately admitted that the enemy may already know these locations. So all the pamphlet will do is stir up a bit of unrest in Britain or dent morale. However, covering all bases, the paper was careful to say that if the baddies did not know the locations, then the people of the nice little village of Warren Row can thank the spies for now making them a big fat target in any coming war. The spies for peace were never caught, and of course the RSGs were never used. Well, some of them are used now. Warren Row is now used as a wine storage facility. In fact, if you try to find the bunker on Google Street View, using the instructions given in the Spies for Peace pamphlet, you see Milton Sanford Wines. And their address is very innocently given as the old chalk mine Warren Row. That address leaps nicely over the old chalk mine's use as a wartime aircraft factory and as a nuclear bunker, and just takes us straight from chalk pit to wine storage. Nicely done. Although the wine company's website does make a quick reference to their facility's colourful history, and if you take a look at it on Street View, to any nuclear geek, it is instantly recognisable as an old bunker. So the newspapers had plenty to say about the Spice for Peace revelations. Police and special branch no doubt had some very colourful language behind the scenes. So lots of people had plenty to say. It stirred up a lot of debate. But surely the central lesson from the Spice for Peace episode is if you have a top secret nuclear bunker, lock the bloody door. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope you're glad that the podcast is back. I've just listened to the recording in order to edit out bits and bobs of nonsense and I hear at some point some traffic noise. That's when I opened the window because it's 17 degrees just now, which is hot for Glasgow. Uh, and I realised I can't open the window during recording because we are now in our new flat living on quite a busy road. So I'm sorry if you heard any traffic sounds. I will make sure I am sealed in with the windows shut next time I'm recording. I'll certainly be more secure than RSG6. So thank you all for listening and let me say thank you of course to my patrons who support the podcast each month with a donation. This week let me give a special shout out to Lissy D, Eric, Simon Robinson, Dan Breen, Tamsin Cater, Harry Andrews, Chris Carini, Louie, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Hat Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Lucy Stegervald, Arika and Paul Jonathan Viner. I was also lucky enough to get some new patrons while I was on my three-week absence moving house. So let me give a shout-out to our new patrons. Francesca Stefanato, Tom Higgins, Mark Willis and Holly Seddon. And of course, if you're one of the patrons who's due a physical reward, uh, fridge magnets, bookmarks, etc., I will now get onto that, given that lockdown is relatively over here in Britain. I can start buying stuff and parceling stuff up and sending out from the post office. So I will get on to that. Um, I hope you'll excuse me just now if I've been a bit slow given lockdown and the house move. 
If you want to support the podcast on Patreon, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. 